I hate the sense that sacraments are at the end of a conveyor belt. And I take a second grader and I put them on. And then I take them off and I say, wait a second, did you complete faith formation last year? Okay, then you can ride the conveyor belt of second grade. And then you got to do these things. you got to do those things. And then you can receive uh, reconciliation and First Holy Communion. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Every Knee Shall Bow, your weekly Catholic podcast on evangelization. My name is Mike Gomer Gormley, and I am joined, as always, by Dave, the party comes with me, Van Vickle. How you doing, Dave? <laughs> I'm good, and the the party came. It's, it's here. The party is here. Literally, uh, yeah, we have a party going on because we have a special guest, Dr. Josh Packard from the Springtide Research Institute. We are very happy to have you here. How you doing today, Dr. Josh? I'm doing great. Thanks, guys, for having me. I'm excited to be on. How long have you been affiliated with with Springtide? How long has that been around? Because it's funny because I, I, all of a sudden I've been hearing this stuff from all of my nerd Catholic circles, like Springtide, Springtide, and I was like, whoa, this is this must be epic. So. Well, I'm very curious about how big the nerd Catholic circle is. I'd like to know more about that. But um, we uh, that that means we're doing our jobs well. It's a uh, we've been around for just a few years. Um, this is a started right. Our, our first project called Belonging, Reconnecting America's Loneliest Generation came out uh, the week that the country went into lockdown for COVID the very first time, <laughs> which is, you know, not by design, but um, we've managed to managed to make it through it. So I've been I've been with the organization from the beginning through the ideation stages and uh, and then now as the executive director. Ooh, so fancy. That's awesome. Uh, and what kind of <laughs> what kind of research you all specialize in? So all, everything we do is about the religious lives of 13 to 25 year olds. And um, that means, you know, if they're having conversations about faith, spirituality, God, et cetera, online, we, we try to, you know, listen in online. Um, if they're having them, you know, with their families, we, we try to get a sense of what's going on there. Primarily, we do that. Well, through COVID, we've been somewhat limited on our data collection, but it's been through a, a bunch of nationally representative surveys. So we collect about 10,000 a year. Which gives us, uh, I think, you know, to my to my knowledge, I think we have the largest data set in the country about young people's religious lives right now. Wow, that's um, awesome! And then we do like, you know, hundreds of interviews. I think we've talked to three hundred and fifty some young people. Uh, which, if you know anything about trying to talk to a young person, that's by far the more impressive number than the thirty thousand surveys. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, you guys must be exhausted. No purgatory for you. Uh, nice. So, um, just real quick, I love talking about the research what are the different ways because on the on the website you have um which if everyone wants to go and check it out springtideresearch.org and uh you have this tab on custom research and uh so can you just give us a for instance of, of what it's like to collect data and using all different methods for a, a research project yeah well it's fast i mean it's it's multifaceted and super interesting uh, um because we do, we certainly do custom research projects for clients that are mission aligned with the things that we're interested in. But we, every fall, we produce a state of religion and young people. So we are, you know, we're collecting um, our own data all the time. We've got a series about mental health that's coming out uh, that'll start, take us for, for the next 18 months about schools and churches, homes and workplaces, and the, and the role that religion and purpose play in, in helping you know, combat what is an epidemic of mental health uh, issues among young people. But 
we do it through this approach that we call data with heart where you know, we, of course, we're like, you know, I have a PhD in sociology. We have a research team with lots of degrees and, and they know how to do it. We care about the methods, uh, the scientific rigor a lot, but we don't think that the science does enough, frankly, mm. like a lot of the, it's too lab coded, you know, it's too, it's like, we're going to be over here studying like young people as if they're in a zoo. Right. <laughs> and, and that's never a thing we wanted to do. I mean, we want to be actionable as a research institute, not just interesting. And that requires us to really understand the lives of young people. So we're asking the right questions. Um, we have an advisory board of young people. We have our own podcast called The Voices of Young People, writer in residence, interns, BIPOC fellow, and on. Like, so we are structurally listening to teenagers, you know, all along the process. And then like punctuating that sort of like air that we breathe with really rigorous data collection in a, metho in a, in a sort of methodical way. Yeah. And I think that you really can't, obviously if you do, if you do the first part without the data collection rigor, you don't really have a leg to stand on. But if you just collect the data and you're not really listening to young people, I don't think you really know what the data mean. Mm. Yeah. I, it's always fascinating because in church circles, especially at the parish, all youth ministers do their, uh, we always joke, uh, is that the amount of teens registered or the amount of teens that show up? Because <laughs> <Yeah>. registered, we <laughs> have, you know, you have like, uh, you know, <laughs> So so many multiples more register than actually come every week. Sure. But the bragging numbers are all on the registered. And uh, we always said, like, oh, there aren't enough. Like, let me just give you one, one specific area. There aren't enough teenagers coming to our youth-oriented mass, right? So you hear that and you begin to filter, well, what does that mean? Well, it turns out that three years prior, the youth ministers were doing a really big push to get the teens to bring their parents back to mass. So kids started sitting instead of the, you know, saved seat section for teens, they started sitting with their parents and they started going to different masses, ones that were more convenient for the whole family, not just a teenager coming to life teen. And it ended up having a really negative effect on the numbers in the eight pews that we, uh, you know, we reserve at the front of the church, but an incredible positive thing in the amount of families attending the Eucharist, you know? So it's like, yeah. There's numbers and then there's meaning. And sometimes the numbers can clearly tell you and sometimes they don't. So I love that notion of numbers with heart. Yeah. 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 I, you know, I read this report like it was rough, I think, just for somebody who is in church evangelization because it very clearly shows that we are not doing a very good job. And, and I mean, like even maybe not even putting it like putting in the effort that we think we are there's the one uh, you'll have to remind me but there's one piece of data where they talk about who's reached out to you yeah and it's like faith leaders is either the second or third lowest you know like yeah i mean that's insane you know that that is where how how low down we are so yeah so the data point you're talking about is we asked young people during the pandemic you know who all reached out to you and they could pick you know from they could pick multiple answers and only 10% of them said that a faith leader had worked, reached out to them during the pandemic. But I, Dave, I'd like to offer just a slight correction. I mean, I, yeah. it, it, this is really challenging. I, I'm not going to disagree with that. I mean, I think that what the, what the data show are certainly, um, you know, a call to action. But I, the, the slight correction is just that, you know, I've given a lot of talks. We've, I've, I've been in a lot of parishes. I've given a lot of talks to non-Christian audiences. And I, I mean, I would say across the board, I've not met more than a handful, if any, who I thought weren't working hard enough or who, you know, we don't, we're not dealing with a deficit of care. Uh, what I think we're dealing with and what these results of the study show is that we've just got some models that they worked for a certain 
you know, a certain world that operated on a certain set of assumptions. And we can talk about those if you want, but those assumptions don't hold true anymore, but we're still trying to use those old models. And, and in particular with that number, I don't think that that, I don't think like that number isn't like indicative of a bunch of youth ministers and, you know, uh, formation directors who don't care about young people during the pandemic. It's, I think what it really does is highlight that we don't have models for doing good outreach and relational work. We've got really great models for like, if you show up on site, you're going to get the best care. Like we'll do anything for you if you just show up on site. And then when they couldn't, all of a sudden it was like, oh, and now, and now here's the crazy thing is that that pandemic world of uh, like, you can't show up on site. That is actually more reflective of like where the country is headed, not because they forcibly can't show up on site, but because there's so often parents are just choosing not to and kids themselves, young adults are choosing not to. Right. Well, I'm glad I'm glad you said that because that that makes me feel a lot better about it. And I think you're right. Exactly. It's we just don't have a relational model at all. Yeah. yeah so for those of you listening, you can head on over to um, springtideresearch.org and get their book. Um, you can get it online. Um, they have excellent um, resources if you want to bump up your your research and really understand how to evangelize the the young people today. I know that so many youth ministers um, draw on sociological research because they want to understand the context in which their content will be received, you know? And so State of Religion and Young People 2021 Catholic Edition, um, you can get that. It's just, it, it, is, it is so frustrating um, when I participate in youth ministry, right? So I used to be the head of youth ministry um, in 2005 to 2008. I, um, I've done a handful of youth ministry things till about 2012, and now I've been doing adult faith formation. And with the pandemic, you know, you, we downsized, we lost people, all this stuff. So I've, <laughs> I've had to become a youth minister somewhat again. And it's like half the kids, I don't, I don't even know where to start. I, it's so radically different from what it was 10 years ago in my, yeah. in my mind, in my approach. There, there's so many things that I just... Number one, it's like they're being given uh, a lot more um, difficult things to deal with. And then on top of that, I find that relationally and emotionally, they're a lot less mature in order to handle those things. So it's like the adults are putting on them increasing weight. And then but then there's not that rock solid community of support around. I don't I don't know. They they're really. um I don't want to harp on the the kind of like the stereotypes that people say of younger generation, but like the me-centered nature that narcissism, like they love, you can tell they're concerned about other people, but it's bizarre. It's bizarre. It is very me-centered, very, I, I, in a way that I haven't experienced mm -hmm. for, you know, in years past doing ministry. You 100% didn't experience it because it didn't exist. I mean, the... The fact is that like the, you know, what young people are dealing with online, they're no match for. And it's not that they're not trying hard. It's not that they don't care about the world around them. In fact, and by many measures, this is the most engaged generation with justice issues, with politics, you know, with all kinds of even their local communities. They they engage in less self-destructive behavior. They're healthier in a lot of ways, except for their mental health and on and on. There's a lot of really positive things about them. But when they get online, they're up against an army of PhDs who are trying to do everything possible to keep them online. 
And their brains developmentally, it's are just, you know, a 15 year old is just no match for that algorithm. These are not, you know, these are not things that they're throwing haphazardly at kids. They're, these are by design. Um, and I can't remember, if it, this might've been in the recent Atlantic article about this or New York Times or something. So I, I thought summed it up so well, and I wish I could give the right credit, but they said, you know, kids are growing up slower in real life than they ever have. And I think that yeah. speaks to the sort of lack of maturity. And they're growing, and at the same exact time, they're growing up online faster than any generation has ever had to grow up. Yeah. And imagine feeling that simultaneous disconnect where right, like you don't right. you don't feel like you're equipped to like go out and get a job and interact with people face to face. And at the same time, you know more about Ukraine <laughs> than like a 16 year old ever would have known about <laughs> geopolitics. Like that's sort of that's what I think, you know, that's mind blowing yeah. to try and make. We don't have tools to deal with that. We, we talk about this all the time where we talk about how the church has changed so much where. Like you look at the Council of Trent, it took like a hundred years for anyone to even know what happened. And now we've got like the Synod on Families. They're like tweeting things out live. You know, yeah. it's like. Now I know what the Pope had for breakfast. <laughs> yeah, right, right. You know, you know what I thought? I, I, what, one of the things I found when I was reading through the study was kind of to your point, Gomer, like where do you start was, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Josh, but uh, one of the statistics said 57% of the one uh, who you surveyed said, that it's going to take a long time for them to build that trust up again or for trust to be yeah. built towards them again. To me, that's like, okay, well, then we know what we're supposed to do here. Like, that's where we put our eggs. You know, that's yeah. the basket right there is we got to build that trust again. And that's exactly right. And so when I alluded earlier to talking about, like, we have models that were built for a certain era, that era was a high trust era, high institutional trust. And mm. so then what did we do? We built a lot of ways for people to engage with our institution. And now I think we're still using those like engage with the institution models, but the fact is that we live in a low trust world. And this yeah. is a this is a trend that's been going on. Gallup, Pew, we have our own data, but they've got data going back 40 years to show, 50 years to show that this decline of institutional trust has been going on with every generation very slowly. And so it's never felt like it fell off a cliff. That's part of the reason why nobody's really focused on it. But now we've got young people walking around, like half of young people who identify as religious say that they don't trust religious institutions. <laughs> How weird is that? Um, I, I might be in that statistic. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> and so we know we know the what. You know, we need to rebuild trust. The question is how, and yeah. and the how question. That's what gets us back to where this this notion of relationship. Uh, so you know, where there's very low trust for institutions, there's very very high trust for individuals when there's a relationship with an individual. Now, when they see that individual is just coming at them as like, I was a professor for a long time. And if they saw me as just, you know, if I was never able to break through that barrier and all they ever saw me as was like the dude who stood at the front of the room and gave grades, then, you know, their trust for me was like zero, right? Yeah. But if we could get past that, if we could form a relationship in some small way, you know, I could find out anything they cared about and ask a follow-up question, then, you know, you would start to see that needle move a lot and real quickly. Yeah, it's funny because during the pandemic, um, we lost all of our youth ministers and it was just me instead of five other people. And um, we have a huge parish here. And uh, so I took the freshmen and I was doing these online only things. And I'm like getting all these complaints from parents like my kid needs to see other people from his faith. Yeah. So I said, OK, we'll offer two classes. We'll have an online version, and an in-person version. And uh, I'll just record the in-person talk, and then that'll be the online talk. So we set it up that way, and it was so funny because it, it, I only had one volunteer. 
She sat outside and did my attendance and made sure I was safe environment certified by having another adult. And then I had 75 kids that would show up, sit in a semicircle in chairs spaced out. So everything was weird. And I would give a lecture, right? But um, we also were going through a really hard time in our family. We had lost some kids via miscarriage and it was really brutal, brutal on us. And so one day I just kind of couldn't contain that and I let it get into my into my talk and into my lecture and all this stuff. And uh, I shared for about maybe 10, 15 minutes of why I'm so distracted and all these things. And to, to this day, the kids, the only thing they remember from that class was not my Absolutely. amazing handcrafted lectures, but me just sharing my story and my, you know, kind of our wife's pain and stuff like that. And, yeah. they, and you could tell that that was about five weeks into the 12 weeks that we had. And it was after that was a sea change in terms of their receptivity to me. They were like, and it's not like I'm very personal, like in my talks and stuff, but it was like that sharing of a vulnerable, broken moment. And I'm like, it's not something that I've never heard before, but I just made it very personal. And they were like, oh, okay, now I know this guy. I can relate to him, you know? Yeah, I think that's right. And I, we talk, so that was a, the state of religion and young people 2020. We put forth this concept called relational authority, where the data were mm -hmm. really telling us that good relationships that young people resonate with um, when it comes to trusted adults have some pretty distinct elements. They're actually not a mystery. It's uh, listening, integrity, transparency, care, and expertise. It's just that for so long in our institutions, we've built around the expertise only model, or at least expertise expertise first, yeah. right? right? Like even again, as my time as a professor, it was like, look at the letters after my name and yeah. like, I, you know, I'm the person in charge here. Um, and you know, you can, you, the, like that works. They're gonna do what they're supposed to do. It's not that it's completely ineffective. Like they know that I have their grades, uh, <laughs> you know, at stake. And so they're gonna, but like, am I, am I really transforming hearts and minds you know, no, right? Like maybe, but it would be haphazard. Hmm. It's when you start doing those other things, listening, integrity, transparency, and care, along with expertise, you know? And if you don't do the expertise part, if you just do the other four, by the way, they tell us that you're just like a fun uncle and they don't really take you that seriously, you know, like, hmm. <laughs> yeah. uh, they, well, they so really want those, to do well, all those things. What were those traits again? So the first one is listening, and it's by far the most important thing you can do for a young person is to listen to them. And it's really hard to do. It's the easiest sounding and the hardest to execute. Because what, what happens when you listen to young people, as you all know, I mean, you've been in youth ministry. When you listen to young people, you end up hearing about all the really terrible ideas that they have, <laughs> like, you know, who they're going to hang out with or what they're going to do or yep. what they're thinking about doing. I mean, they're just not always great. And so you your tendency is to want to jump in, right? Mm. You want to you want to default back into expert mode and say, like, oh, you shouldn't do that. Like, instead, you should do this other thing. But it's so disruptive. I mean, it is radically, wildly disruptive for you to listen to genu genuinely just listening to understand and get to know a young person. A, a young person told me once when we were recording for our podcast, they said, look, our dominant experience of interacting with adults is of being dismissed. Like e everything that we say, I, I just assume that you're waiting so that way you can say the thing that, you know, you're supposed to say as yeah. an adult. Yeah. And so when you listen and don't do that the first, you know, the first time, second, third, fifth time, whatever it takes to really get that trust, wildly disruptive and and builds so much trust because a lot of times oh and in fact another young person told me like it's just so important that people listen because a lot of times i don't even know what i think until i say it out loud and i'm yeah. sort of exploring when i talk you've seen this yeah uh, this is with adults too i mean this is yeah, with, yeah sure too. but i mean 
I sat across, I sat across the desk from young people who are like, you know, I'm going to draw, I'm going to take a year off and done it. I'm like, oh man, I, I, with every bone in my body, I want to be like, that is such a bad idea. <laughs> but you I know dumb. I can't say it in, yeah. Like, I know I can't say it in this talk. Like I have to find another way to get in front of them again and again. But yeah, yeah. I was just talking to a, a friend of mine and we we're in like a little men's group. And uh, he was like saying like, you know, it really wasn't this group. He kind of formed it. He's like, it, it hasn't turned out to be what I thought it was going to be. And I said, like, you know, Joe, like, I, you know, I really share things because like pretty much we're all we do in this group is just give our opinions about geopolitical politics. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's like, it's like, you know, that like, I, like, I don't want to put myself out there and get that, you know, get yeah. oiled with that. But I totally you managed get to it. recreate Twitter in real life. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Listen, I read an article and watched a YouTube video. I'm basically an expert. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, it's funny because um, the there was a wonderful book called Contemplative Youth of Ministry by Mark Iaconelli, and his whole approach was um, take a, a Catholic understanding of mysticism, basically, you know, like the the listening, the receptivity, and apply it to how you do actual ministry with people one on one or with small groups. And what you will find is those people will become far more receptive the more receptive you are to them. And yeah. so one of the things that I began doing was um, I would ask us, you know, just a small group question and just shut up and listen. And it kills me to shut up and listen. And I'm terrible at it because they're so so unformed and so, you know, whatever, but you know that like, yeah. I, I honestly there, that was me, you know, that was me 100%. I was an unformed idiot. And, uh, but the, the, to me, the difference is because you're, because we've created, um, entire domains where adults and kids no longer connect with one another, no longer interacting with one another. Adults are not there for the process of kids learning. They're not there. They're just the, the, the dictatorial and then they leave. And this is especially true of parents where there are so many different levels of where you could drop your kids off and not be invested that it reverberates out into, into everything. So kids have their own subculture with one another and they're learning how to navigate life from the worst people possible, namely each other. Right. And not just that, that, cause that was kind of, that was our generation too, you know, yep. people in their, yep. probably people in their fifties to their thirties. But the problem is with people in their 30s and younger, more so 20s, they were doing that through the lens of social media, which is the worst of the worst. And I don't I think we all need to start off by giving them a lot of credit that they made it this far and they're still alive. Like <laughs> it's a Herculean task. Well, and I think like if it can be hard not to step in and play that role of the expert, as you mentioned, and and a lot of and, you know, it's parents are invested. They're just invested in a much different way. You know, the, toting your kids around town and paying however much money they're paying for each of these different services, like that's investment of a different kind. Mm -hmm. And it might not be the same investment that people made generations ago, but it, I, I think you could make the case that it's the same level, that parents care as much as they always have about their kids. But I think it puts professional ministers in a strange position where all of a sudden it's not just parents who think that they're sort of paying, uh, quote unquote, for a service, but it's professional ministers who think they're there to provide that service. A service, right. And so, yeah, like I, I, maybe we can think about channeling that expertise in a slightly different way if we just think about it this way. Im imagine that all of the kids that you come into contact with have all of the information that they want about God. 
And I think it fundamentally changes everything that we do. Now, I'm not saying that they have all the information they need. Like, you know, I'm just saying that like they can Google at any moment everything that they want to know about, or not even Google, because let's be honest, they're not Googling. They can get on TikTok and they can, you know, like hashtag witch talk has millions of followers. They can learn everything they want about witches. They can learn everything they want about Catholics. Like one of the best selling or best downloaded podcasts is the Bible in a year. It's a Catholic yeah. podcast, right? Made by the fine folks here at Ascension Press. <laughs> there you go. Uh, but what they don't have, and what they'll they'll be very quick to tell you if you ask them, is that they have no experience of grace, of divine love, of forgiveness. Um, they just they don't have a firsthand encounter with the experience of the divine. And that is what place where I think that we can really show up as experts and be like, well, let's bring them more into contact with those things. And I promise yeah, if you do yeah. that, you're going to get to do the education part. But it's like we have these systems that were built to do education first when information was in short supply before the Internet. Right. Like some people had information we needed to get to the people who didn't have it. And that was primarily kids. But now information is abundant, but experience is in really short supply. And I think we can if we focused our expertise into that area. I think we all would have more fun. Like everybody doing ministry would have more fun because you would get to be creating these sacred, holy, amazing experiences. Right. Um, and I think it would make more of a difference. Yeah. Yeah. If you were sitting down with uh, an average high school core member, right? This is a, a – let's say you have – actually, let me just pretend like I'm going to send this to my core team. And this is part of their training. Okay, you're going to be with a group of high school students – you're going to have, let's say, 10 kids, boys and girls, for about 45 minutes a week, mm -hmm. right? What would you say, drawing on um, your studies and all, all this information, what would you say would be the best way to facilitate that small group experience? So I think it's about a, the first thing is a mindset shift. And here's the shift that I think needs to occur is that you, you never let go of the expertise. You are the expert. You're the grown up in the room. But for a long time, that has also meant that you are driving the timeline because what does an expert do if not keep us moving towards mm. a certain goal, right? In this case, I think it's that we retain that, that claim on expertise, but we give over the timeline to the young people that we're with. If it, you know, if it ends up that, like I remember I was, I was confirmed in the Lutheran church and when I was growing up and it was like confirmation happens in middle school between this year and this year. And I remember like, well, what if I can't? You know, like, what if I move schools or like, what, what if my kids in the military or, you know, like, what if they're experiencing trauma? And the church is like, confirmation happens in middle school between this year. And this year. like, there was no, like, come, you were going to get confirmed in that period of time. And I, the timelines just don't make any sense anymore when, for young people. And I think that's the, the single most important thing that I would disrupt, which is like, we're going to, we're going to dig into topics. We're going to be here for as long as it takes it. I'm going to be consistently trying as the expert to give you a peek into how I encounter whatever the topic is that we're talking about as somebody who is maybe if not fully formed, at least more formed, you know, than, than the young people that we're talking with. And so if we get to X point along the faith development timeline by the end of the semester, great. If we get to Y point, that's okay too. But we're going to be here for the long haul. Like this is not going to be a thing we're going to cram into three months. Um, you know, it, like life is not as sort of compartmentalized and neat and tidy as I think it was, you know, we could at least assume for some portion of the population that it was maybe 20 or 30 years ago. This is a long haul, lots of listening. And, you know, we can we can fool ourselves by sort of making it conform to our timeline. We get to go to bed at night feeling good about ourselves. But if we want durable faith that lasts, we've got to create belonging over the long run. Mm. 
That is so fantastically different than CCD where, (laughs) you know, teachers are like, no, I've got to get this all in, you know? know, And it's like, yeah, but I love it. I love everything you're saying, especially get rid of the timeline because it puts so much pressure on the church to like do mystical things in a certain (laughs) amount of time. And it's like, well, I'm not God, you know, like, what are you expecting here? Well, you're not yet. Not yet, Dave. <laughs> well, I do. I, I I understand that. Like, it sounds very simple when I say it, and, it mm. and the research certainly backs it up. I feel very convicted about it, you know, based on the data. But I also understand my my expertise. Uh, in when I was getting my PhD, is in organizational structure, and the Catholic Church is nothing if not an organizational structure, right? And it's uh, doing what I said is harder uh, than I made it sound. Yeah, you know, blowing up the timeline is not an easy thing. There's some churches. In, in their diocese, they'll do things like confirmation is every other month on this Sunday at this time. And like, I think, I think it's the diocese of Springfield, Illinois, maybe they, they started that, but it was like, you come, I'm not coming to you. You come to the head church of the diocese and you come to me when you are formed and ready. So like, typically it'll be like the pastor will say, you know, have some form letter and they communicate it or whatever, but it's like, yeah, this this adult is ready to receive their confirmation. Mm-hmm. And it's 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 to break. And this is the thing that I hate, but also I'm in charge of it. So I hate the sense that sacraments are at the end of a conveyor belt. Right. Yeah. And I take a second grader and I put them on, and then I take them off and I say, wait a second, did you complete faith formation last year? Okay, then you can ride the conveyor belt of second grade. <laughs> and then you've got to do these things, you got to do those things, and then you can receive uh, reconciliation and first holy communion. And you go through this and like you you feel the artificiality of it. But at the same time, I look around at a big church and I wonder out loud. What is a better way to do it? Like, I mean, so now they can receive their, if they're not ready, and I have no problem telling people when we have to delay sacraments. Sure. Um, but if, if they're not ready, they can come in third grade, fourth grade, whatever. And we have plenty of people that do. But the majority are, they have good enough attendance to rock that conveyor belt, answer the questions correctly. And then, you know, here they are. And I don't know how to move away from that uh, with a big parish. With a small parish, I do. But not with a big bearish. Agreed. Yeah, I mean, I it, it is. I think it requires um, the people with boots on the ground to have a, a very strong grasp of what are the signs and markers that we've reached a different stage of faith development. You know that what a young person says and does X, Y, and Z consistently. Like I, I, I was working with a place, uh, and and they were like, "Look, we we understand exactly how we want these relationships to unfold. The first thing we want to do is get to know their name. Check one." Right. The second thing we want to be able to do is to talk to them about something that's important in their life, too. And then we want to talk about and share something that's important in our lives. And these all have to be in different conversations. And like, and then it gets to the point where like, we want to say the word God in front of them where they don't run away screaming. And like, okay, you know, like that's a checkbox. And it's like they've broken this down, you know, into into very discrete things. So that and where that part, I think if you just looked at it on paper, that could start to feel very mechanistic. Mm-hmm. What it but what it does is that it allows them to abandon the timeline because what they say is like, look, if it takes us a year to get from step three to four, okay. Sure. You know, so, you know, I, that's what, so with my kids that my own children, it's like, I took them out of that rat race. Cause I was like, I'm not doing this. I'm not gonna, mm-hmm. 
you know, put all this pressure on this one weekend and they're, you know, kids are passing out and throwing up because they're nervous and stuff like yeah. that. And it's like, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to do it. Like, I want it to be a nice contemplative moment for them. And I think making a long-term switch to putting the onus on families more is going to be is going to be important with a lot of this because it just, the numbers don't add up. I mean, you can't, you just can't at a parish like yours, Gomer, you'd have to have a, like a thousand volunteers. Yeah. Literally, you know? So we have, let, let me give you some perspective on our numbers. We have 1300 kids that attend some form of weekly faith formation on campus. Mm-hmm. And of that, we have uh, around 350 who make their first Holy Communion. The majority of them are second graders. And when we go through this stuff, so there's a component that they do at home, a component once a month that they do as a group. And then they have to be in some sort of class, whether they're a Catholic school, home study, or or come to our weekly faith formation. And within that, the hope is that we've given everyone rock solid catechetical. We've given them the knowledge mm-hmm. and the desire. So when they come once a month, that's our goal to hit the desire. Right? The old uh, joke, um, someone once asked a priest, hey, Father, what's the difference between ignorance and apathy? And he said, I don't know. And quite frankly, I don't care. Um, so we always emphasize the ignorance part, but if you emphasize the apathy part, you, it cures ignorance on its own. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I, like, I, I, I have said that line a million times. I don't always know how to do that. How do I address apathy? So what I do is I get, try to get more creative at addressing ignorance that if they just learn one more thing, then that'll woo them. (laughs) <laughs> that's funny. Uh, you know, what's too, what, what is fascinating about that is that we've got like all this emerging neuroscience too, which has, has been able to show pretty conclusively that more information does not motivate anybody to do anything and it never has. It's no surprise that more information doesn't motivate young people to believe in God. We're just going to go throw up right now. <laughs> yeah. real quick. I know. Look, <laughs> I feel like kids no. on com- first communion day. <laughs> There's a reason why you're talking to a researcher. And I think we've mentioned <laughs> three numbers in this entire podcast. I know it doesn't matter. Like I, it's a, it's enough to open the door for a conversation. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. But, but like more information doesn't, it's, it's not the thing that has ever gotten people to stop smoking. Right. right. It's not it's not the thing, you know, like Alcoholics Anonymous is not built around more information. Mm. We like that just isn't the way that human brains and psychology are built. It's it's groups, it's belonging, it's aspiration to something else. It's it's the sociology of it that actually compels people to do and behave and believe in different things, not not sort of giving them more information. And so it's a it it, it really is like fun. And I look I also I was a professor. Like I like I wanted people to get information. Yeah. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I just there, there's this whole other side of it that I think that we're we're often missing. And I think you put your finger on it. It's because we we sort of don't know how to do that other part all the time. So, so you mentioned before, like I mean, along these same lines, like that none, most of them have never had an experience of God. Is that how you, is that what you said? Or grace? Yeah. You said grace. Yeah. Any of those, like when we yeah. ask them about any of those things, like so, grace or love or any of those things. So you're talking about like, an, like setting up a, like a culture of encounter. Like that's what we're trying to, we want to, we want to, on a culture that boisters an encounter with Jesus Christ or that kind of a thing. Yeah. And I, the, see, the weird thing is that I think that young people, I mean, this maybe reveals something about my theology. I think that young people are often having those encounters 
but there's nobody there. There's no expert there to help them name it. I love that you said that. Yeah. And so when, like, when, because we ask them, we're like, okay, look, if it's not Friday nights in the, you know, in the pew at a synagogue or Sunday mornings in the pews at a church or whatever, like, if that's not doing it for you, what is? And what they talk about is they're like, oh, when I'm, I'm uh, cooking food or a meal with my friends and family, people I'm close to, going into nature, doing art, engaging in social protest and justice issues. Um, these are, you know, not only do they interpret these as meaningful, but they interpret them as explicitly spiritual or faith forming moments for them. But I don't think that they have the sort of like, A, they're young and B, there's just not the same engagement with institutions that there used to be. So where you can sort of default like, oh, they're probably experiencing that as some sort of monotheistic savior driven God. Like, no, like they're, they're just, they know something is happening in those moments, Mm. but they don't know what. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's super interesting. Well, I mean that, and that's super interesting too, because they need a guy. I mean that you could just being a part of a football team that you love, you know, I mean, that's like, could be like a spiritual experience or something like that. I mean, it could be, yeah, but we shouldn't get carried away by thinking that attendance is the marker of that. So because the, like your head is going exactly where our head went. And if we ask them, you know, we ask them all these attendance questions, all these belonging questions, and we started doing what's called a cross tabs. You look at, you know, how many attend and then do they feel a sense of belonging? It turns out that attendance alone doesn't create belonging at all. Um, It's, if you attend and you have a relationship there. And that's true not only for religious settings, but you mentioned teams. It's true for sports teams too, which is so wild, right? When I was a kid, I I left the football team because I didn't feel like I belonged there and joined the tennis team, a very natural transition. Because like, you know, because I felt like that's where my community was. But now those things are just completely decoupled. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that's interesting. And so like it's it really is about like do they know a coach or other players or yeah. somebody then if, that'll make all the difference. If you want to see uh attendance and detachment at the same time, please come to my youth group where you will see <laughs> while I'm giving a talk, I will point to the the football players on the right <laughs> who are as detached as you can be. It you is, don't think they're just live tweeting everything you say? Yeah, yeah, apparently not. <laughs> hey, uh, does anyone have a moleskin notebook you're taking notes in? No? Okay, I hate myself. Um, yeah, it is funny because you, like, we all we all know, honestly, like, we know that the relationships matter more than anything else. Relationships lay the groundwork. They build trust. They help with healing. They overcome wounds. They um, address inconsistencies. They bring integrity, like, all of those things that actually being with a person. And then you say, okay, but I have a job and my job is I'm, I'm here for the formation of young people. So one of the ways that you kind of justify within the institutional setting is you say, well, I'm just supplying one component of this overarching multifaceted thing. So I'm going to focus on intellectual formation and this. Because mom and dad are supposed to be doing this and this and and their small group or their, you know, whatever. But then you find that they don't have anything other than my one component. So how do you for an hour and 15 minutes a week, <laughs> you know, like where we're because like we can't be all things, all people. I remember reading a, um, a, a critique of a business um, business schools in general. And it was. You are asking the CEO, the manager, the whatever, 
to be a father or mother to every employee right. because right. you're responsible for <laughs> healing their emotional hurts and helping them plan their life and all of these things. And it's funny because that's the last thing I want from anyone who's been my boss ever. But also I can say every one of my employees, I personally consider a friend. Like it's, it's more than employment. Like I am invested in them as persons. And I'm like, did I just accidentally like backdoor my way into this business model where I am like, you know, like I didn't mean to do it, but now my children (laughs) come like, am I their doctor? I mean, I pay for the insurance. So yes, yes, I am. I heal them, you know, (laughs) Uh, I've totally Michael Scotted my way. Yeah. But, but you know what I mean? Like, I can't, like, all these other things are supposed to be there. They're not there. I'm supposed to be doing just a supplemental thing. But now I'm asked to be the substitutes for the loving parents who taught them how to pray as a family. That's not there. Um, going to weekly Eucharist. That's not there. Coming, you know, like, there's so much that's not there now that it breaks my chubby little heart. And I feel like, but I can't do all of those things, you know? I can only do these things. So solve all my problems. <laughs> well, I think they, these are, is, this is absolutely the right, like you're putting your finger on exactly the right button, which is that our, our structures are not built to do this. And mm. so for, for right mm. now, the best answer that you've, that you've got is probably like, you need to do the job that you are there to do. And um, as I, I keep this quote on my dry erase board, I'll try and move my mic so you can hear it. it he's, this guy who was telling me he's a youth minister and that he sometimes gets really defeated by the structures that he works in. And he says, but then I pray and I show up and I work with great hope and honest optimism. Mm. And I think sometimes that's all we've got. And then the only thing I would add to that is advocacy. Like you, you've got to work from the position that you're at to advocate for something different and, and to point out. And I, you know, we've, we hear all the time that our research, especially for people who are doing this work on the ground, they, they hold up, you know, they'll like hold up the book and they'll shake it at a, like at a, at a talk that I give afterwards. And like this, this is the ammunition that I need to take back to my boss to let me do the work that I know that matters. Mm. And, and so we, and we hope we can be that because you're right inside of that structure. I mean, what really needs to be done is that you need to start creating, uh, you know, using this Catholic term of accompaniment, this, this long-term relational based sense of belonging. But can you do that if your job is an hour and 15 minutes a week to do this and there's nothing else really leaning into that no you can't like you've got to start but you can like start having the conversation yeah oh so because it's too much to ask from one person yeah so i just want to take that last audio clip and send it to all my parents just be like it's too much to ask i'm too busy come over oh, here i thought when he was reading the quote from the youth minister i was like where was he when i was hiring youth ministers for the last 20 years? <laughs> you know um one of the things that i think I'm, I was, I never liked teenagers, even when I was a teenager. So it's like youth (laughs) ministry is the furthest thing from my heart. But Jim Beckman, you know, he taught me something one time that I've used over and over and over again that kind of goes along with this. And that is reverse mentoring, like asking a teenager some to teach me something that they care about. And I, I have exploited that so many times for the gospel because it really is so much easier to build the relationship like that, but it does put them kind of a little, a little bit of the expert position a little bit in a sense. It's, there's a vulnerability there, you know? Absolutely. And and I think like, to me, I think like in those situations where I've maybe been in one-on-one or one-on-two or one-on-three, 
there's been so much more fruit than me speaking to 150 kids or to 500. You know what? It, like, I nope. mean, so nope. I just kind of. Nope, nope, nope. nope. <laughs> I was going to say, Gilbert's ego just dies a little bit. Mine too. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Give me the crowds. I don't want individuals. Uh, nope, I hear you. They're, you know, the reality is that they do different things, right? It, yeah. it, 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 if we use them effectively, they do different yeah. things. Speaking to a crowd is important, but it's not. Uh, for too long, we've, we've thought about it as like the only tool in our tool. Yeah. 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 Uh, I'm going to throw it out to a commercial break to our fine phones at fine phones, fine folks at Ascension. Email us at EKSB at AscensionPress.com. When we come back, we'll wrap up the show. But we want your responses to this interview. Um, We all know that data driven science can point us in a million different directions. That's why I love their your phrase research with heart. Um, how can we email us about how can we start to implement this with young people? I mean, we have we cannot ignore because the situation and culture is so different. Our missionary mandate to evangelize, to love, to bring all to the glory of God. So email us um, what you're getting from this episode, EKSB at EssentialPress.com. And we'll be right back. Okay, here's the gut check right here, because if nothing changes, nothing changes. Do you want to be holy? And do you want to be an instrument of renewal in this world? And if so, do you believe it's possible? Do you know what it looks like? Do you know where to begin? Because if nothing changes, nothing changes. My name is Father Mark Mary. I'm a Franciscan friar of the Renewal, and I wrote a book called Habits for Holiness. And it pulls from over 800 years of Franciscan tradition, wisdom, and experience of radical and total discipleship in the midst of the world, but in a way which begins with little steps and works not only for religion, not only for priests, but for everybody. The change you desire is possible. The conversion you desire is possible. The renewal you desire is possible. The healing you desire is possible. And it begins with little steps. So to guide you on your way and to help you make the next best step of renewal in your life, I'd invite you to pick up a copy of my book, Habits for Holiness. God bless you. Welcome back to Every Knee Shall Bow. I hope you got to hear about some awesome stuff from Ascension Press. We love being a part of the Ascension Press family. They have such great materials. If you're in the in the church world or even just if you're just a lay volunteer, it's such a great resource for us. So we're back with Dr. Josh Packer talking about this. Uh, this is awesome work that you do. And I'll tell you one of the... Um, one of the specific things about like the booklet that really touched me um, was page 30, 31. It's like a closer look and it talks about the disconnect Mm -hmm. and there's a few things that are tough, you know, like um, when you get to the end of those statistics, it's like, I don't trust religion, faith or religious leaders. I don't feel safe within religious institutions. Um, I, uh, let's see, I have been harmed by religion or faith. I would not even think to go to a faith. Those are not small numbers to me. And I think like, I just want to know, like, I mean, you're the one who was doing these interviews or your group was doing these interviews. What's the, what's the next step for us here? I mean, that, that's kind of a heartbreaking, those are heartbreaking statistics for somebody who works for the church, you know? Well, there's two really important things, especially about that section, to keep in mind. Number one is that uh, I think we can get carried away by looking at any one of those. But the the real highlight or takeaway from that is that just as much as adults 
who are not young people, you know, they, they end up telling themselves stories about young people. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, they, they don't, they, they don't, they're not experiencing the same things, but we need to fill that cognitive dissonance in somehow. So we sort of construct this narrative in our head about what young people are and what they care about. And a lot of stereotypes come from that. It's basic, basic sociology. If you remember your college years, um, well, young people are doing the same thing. And I think that's what these data show is that the more disconnected they get from religious institutions, the more they start building a narrative about you. And and the, what's fascinating about it, and it's not true. It's not any more true than, you know, what the stories that adults tell themselves about young people. But I, I think it helps us to point the way to where we can do some of that radically disruptive work that I mentioned earlier. So anytime we do anything that's counter to those narratives, it starts to question the entire set of assumptions. So, you know, when, when you show up and just listen to a young person and don't try to tell them what to do, when, when you are also expressing care and real action about the environment or whatever cause that they're into, uh, like it starts to disrupt every uh, assumption that they have about sort of, re- otherwise it's just headlines and the headlines right now for religion are not great. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, they're really not. Uh, and the second thing to keep in mind is that despite all of this, religious young people fare better. They're, they're better off at home. They're better off in their mental health. They're better off at work. They're better off in their social lives and on and on. We have that data for 13 to 25 year olds right now. Gallup actually just this past summer uh, or just past winter, I mean, within the last six months, released um, sort of the summary of their long-term, like all the research they've ever done into this and come to the same conclusion. Every, every metric is that, you know, religion helps. Um, now, obviously, you can take that too far, and there's certain, not all religion is equally good. Mm, right. um, some of it can be toxic and, and cause a lot of trauma and harm. But nevertheless, the big takeaway is that religious kids are doing better than non-religious kids, mm. and, and um, so we should we should keep those things in mind and, and work really hard to make sure that they have a chance to to connect in those important ways. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, yeah, this was great. Yeah, um, Dr. Josh, is there anything uh, in particular you want to drive our audience to to come check out? Yeah, sure. You can find this. Uh, so right, but you mentioned our, our website is springtideresearch.org. Uh, you can follow, I'm on Twitter at Dr. Josh Packard if you're a Twitter person. But the big thing that we are um, going to be doing for the next year, year and a half really, is about the role that uh, religion and purpose play in helping to create organizations that are mental health friendly, meaning that mm-hmm. we are we are stopping this crisis before it becomes a crisis. So we're, you know, mental health issues are gonna come up as they always do for young people. But right now they so often, we don't know what to do or have the tools to do anything until it becomes a, like, we need to refer them to an actual professional because things have gotten out of hand. Right? Yeah. So we wanna help organizations really build cultures of mental health friendliness and help their young people thrive and flourish. And a big part of that is helping them discover purpose, um, something bigger than themselves. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, one, one of the key indicators for me that I can see of of mental health issues in young people is an obscure saint is now the number one saint for boys and girls in confirmation, which is Saint Dimphna, yeah. the patron saint of mental health issues. Oh, and, fascinating! Yeah, uh, and just yesterday we confirmed three adults who were uh, one teenager and, and two adults, and uh, one out of the three was a Dimphna, and I'm like. Just it's everywhere. What if it's just the people that you serve, though? No, that's what I think. No, that's what I'm saying. That's the matrix. That's where they all. (laughs) I'm at the center of all the intersections, and quite honestly, it makes sense now in my life. (laughs) Well, Dr. Josh, thank you again, um, and thank you for all the hard work you and your team is doing at um, Springtide Research. God bless y'all, and uh, yeah, everyone, hit us up eksp at essentialpress.com. Adios.